As we're looking at God's word this morning, though, thinking back to those who have passed away, those who've gone ahead, who've left us this testimony of faith, this morning we're diving in a little bit more and giving some additional details into what we kind of talked about last week. Last week we were looking at what does it look like for us to seek the risen Savior. We said out of anything that we need to be doing, anything we're pursuing in life, that we need to be seeking the risen Savior above and beyond everything else. But you may have walked out of here last week with the idea of, yes, I want to seek Jesus, I want to follow him, but I don't know what that looks like or what that means. Hopefully this week we're going to flesh out a little bit more about what that looks like. Uh, By the way, we're going to be in John, so go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the back of the pew there in front of you. Uh, John, it's going to be around page like 965 or so, so 963. All right, 963, John 20, we're going to be starting in verse 19. Um, If you're not familiar with how the Bible is laid out, it's in different books, and uh, the book of John is the one that we're in. The big verses, or the big numbers you see there in bold, those are the chapter numbers, so we're in chapter 20, and the verse numbers are the smaller numbers that you see there in the text, and so that's verse 19 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, you're welcome to take the one that's there in the back of the pew. We have plenty, and we can always order more. Um, If you want a slightly nicer version, I have some in my office that have leather and stuff like that look a little bit nicer. And so if you want something like that, please let me know after the service. And I would love nothing more than to be able to get you your own copy of God's Word, okay? But as we're diving into the text this morning, oh yeah, but real quick, just a couple housekeeping things. We've been in John since uh, like August, I think August or September is when we started the Gospel of John, and that's pretty much what we've looked at with a little bit of break at Christmas and things. So uh, just so you know, we've got about two or three messages left in the Gospel of John, and then I'm not 100% sure where we're headed this summer, but it actually may be to 1 Peter that Mike was reading from this morning. Uh, so we may be looking through 1 Peter together this summer, but just in case you were wondering, there you go. We've only got a few messages left in John, and then we'll dive in. We've got this week, next week, and then we'll do a recap message to try to summarize everything God's taught us. I have really enjoyed going through John. Um, I feel like, though, like another pastor I heard one time, he said, as soon as I get done preaching a book, I want to go back and start from the beginning again because I actually understand it this time, and now I could go back and do it right. But as we're diving in, what we're seeing here is what it looks like for us to seek the risen Savior, and we're going to summarize it with two different words, believe and go. Believe and go. Now, there are other, other responsibilities that we find in following Christ, but, but as we look at the text this morning, here are the two main things that come out of us. We need to believe him, and we need to be willing to go testify about him. Now, for us to understand this, what we're going to do is we're going to read through the whole text together, and then we're going to come back. We're going to look at it a little bit differently this morning. Instead of starting up back where we start, we're actually going to kind of invert it and start with the second part of the story first and then go back. Okay? It'll make sense when we get there. Start with me in John chapter 20, verse 19. When it was evening of that first day of the week, now this is, again, the same day that Jesus rose from the the dead. This is They've gone to the tomb. They've seen all that, but the disciples themselves hadn't seen Jesus. So that evening, when it was evening the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. So they're in a room. They're scared. They're hiding. The doors are locked. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. All right, now, Pause just real quick. Can you picture it? You're in a locked room. You're scared because although there's some evidence that maybe Jesus is raised from the dead, you haven't seen him yet. Everything is really scary right now. They just killed Jesus. Are they coming after you? You're locked in, and all of a sudden, there's Jesus standing in the middle of you. Okay? Peace be with you. That's a great way to start off, right? Because I don't know about you, I would be freaking out. 
okay? I just would. How did Jesus do this? He's God, okay? Does this mean that when we get our resurrected bodies after he returns, that that means that we'll get to actually be able to pass through walls and stuff like that? I have no idea. He's Jesus. He can do things we don't get to do. Any way you cut it, they're in a locked room. They're scared to death. Boom, Jesus shows up in the middle. Verse 20, having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. Now, that's a confusing verse. We're going to come back to it in a little bit, okay? Verse 24. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails, put my hand into his sides, I will never believe. Not a good attitude to have, by the way. That's where he earned the nickname Doubting Thomas. That's where that comes from. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Pray with me. Father, we're those who have not seen. We didn't have the privilege of being able to look into the empty tomb or to have you show up in our midst like you did with the disciples. But today we believe their testimony. We believe the way you have worked throughout thousands of years of church history. We trust you. But there may be some folks in this room or some people who are watching us online who have never come to that place of belief. Would you even draw them to yourself through the words that we speak today, through your word as it's declared? Meet with us now in the way only you can, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we dive in, we're going to start with this idea of belief. So we're going to just pick back up there in verse 24. We're not going to go all the way back to the top. As we've been working our way through John, we've seen that belief is an incredibly important part of following Jesus. We saw last week where John saw the empty tomb and he had believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. And now 10 of the disciples have believed because they actually saw Jesus. Then there's Thomas. Like I said, this is where the phrase doubting Thomas comes from. You may have heard that used in the culture and never knew where it came from. This is where it started because there was this guy. He was one of Jesus' disciples. He wasn't there the night that Jesus showed up. And even though everybody said, look, man, we've seen Jesus, he said, nope, I don't believe you. Look again at verse 24 and 25. So Thomas called twin was one of the 12. He wasn't with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nail in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails, put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas had heard the stories, but he felt like he needed to to see it for himself. Now you may have been or even still are in the place where Thomas was. I don't know if you've ever said this or had somebody say this to you, but You know, if God was real, if God really existed, he really wanted me to know him, why didn't he just show up right here? Like, why didn't he just show up in the church service right now? Until I see him, I'm not going to believe it. It, it, Why is it that he didn't just show up in the parking lot as we're leaving today? If Jesus would just show up, I would believe him. Well, uh, here's the interesting thing. God actually did that 
over and over again in the Old Testament, and people still didn't believe. You find the Israelites seeing him come on the mountain as he descends in this cloud and fire and all this smoke and crazy sound and thunder as he comes to the top of the mountain to give them the law. And the people are in awe of it. And within a matter of days, they're already making idols and not following the one true God. You see, here's how this works. Okay, let's imagine for a second that when we walked out of church today, Jesus was in the parking lot, okay? Or at least there's a guy who's claiming to be Jesus. Maybe he really looks like him. He's got, you know, some, some holes in his wrist or something like that. And maybe he can do some kind of miracle. You know, maybe there's somebody in here who's got some kind of ailment and he just, boom, heals them of it. You know, he takes care of something. How would you actually react? Let's be honest. Eh, right. Where's the mirrors? <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's, that, that can't be real. We live in an incredibly cynical age, right? There's no such thing as illusions. Any, anybody that you watch on America's Got Talent, you know, you watch this illusionist do this card trick or something like that, and, and then if you go the next day on YouTube, you can find somebody who explains how they did it, Right? So if we saw some guy out there who claimed to be Jesus, we would sit there and say, yeah, right, there's no way. That's not him. Even if God showed up, the same would be true of you. That's what the Pharisees did. They thought that Jesus was possessed by a demon, and that's how he was doing the miracles he did. Now, you may not go to demon possession because you may dismiss the supernatural, but the reality is the same thing. Even if Jesus was right in front of you doing miracles, you wouldn't believe him. Because, see, belief requires faith. Belief requires faith. See, here's the thing. We don't like that. People have this concept, then you, okay, so Sean, you're telling me just to like check my logic and reason at the door and just blindly believe this. No, not at all. The faith that we put in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord is not a blind faith. There are things about God that we don't understand. There are questions that we will never have the answer for. However, we have a God who has revealed himself through his word, who has given us a clear indication of what's right about him, what he has done. He has died in our place and rose from the dead and given us and preserved his word throughout history. Not only that, we have 2,000 years worth of history of folks who have trusted in Jesus and seen him work in incredible ways in their life. You have a room full of about 100 or so folks here this morning who most of you, I believe, know Jesus and could give testimony to the fact that he has worked in your life. Go back to what I said about Dawn texting me this week. You know, when she texted me this, after, this week, that was, I think, God at work. I was stressing out, and I had no idea. You say, well, Sean, it's just coincidental. She knew that it was a busy day, and she had a day off, and she could help you. No, there are too many things that happen like this for it to all be coincidence. Now, it does require faith. Belief, logic, reason. Logic and reason can only take you so far. Now, I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, if you've got questions about the veracity of Scripture or about the historicity of the Bible or any of these kind of things, Paul Metzler, Mike Montgomery, and other people in our church would love to sit down with you over coffee or over lunch. Actually, not over coffee because Paul doesn't like coffee. He'll buy you a cup, though. Are you working on it? Wow. Oh, man, there's major progress. This is like growth and sanctification. He's finally starting to like coffee. But Paul and Mike would be happy to sit down with you and go over some of the historical evidence and things like that. But listen, they can give you all the facts. They can outline for you all of the significant figures. 
But there's coming a time where you have to say, I believe. And it's got to be in faith. You can never be fully convinced. At its core, belief has to involve faith. That's what Jesus is getting at in verse 29. Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Isn't that cool that Jesus is talking about us, by the way? We, we haven't seen him. We haven't seen the physical body of Jesus. We, we haven't seen the, the empty tomb. Like I said, we're, we're just here going off the testimony of what the apostles have said and all that God's done over the last 2,000 years in church history. But we believe because of who God is. Now, back to the idea of believing. What does belief actually look like? Thomas had said he would have to see the scars and touch them himself to believe. Now, here again what happens verse 26. A week later... His disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas saw Jesus. He had the privilege of actually seeing him, of seeing the wounds. But you know what Thomas didn't do? There's no record that he actually poked Jesus right? Seeing Jesus was enough. You know what's interesting, by the way? Jesus wasn't in the room when Thomas had said, unless I see it and put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. But what did Jesus say? Here they are. Go ahead. What's that mean? God knows everything, right? Jesus had heard it, even though he may not have been physically present in the room in his earthly material body as God, he knew exactly what was going in Thomas's heart. He knew exactly why Thomas was disillusioned or whatever it was that was holding him back from believing. And so when he showed, he addressed the very issues that Thomas had. And Thomas's response gets to a, the essence of belief for us. In faith, looking at Jesus, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Let's break that apart for a second because there's some important truths in that. First, he said, my Lord and my God. See, as you'll notice, this is a personal response. He wasn't just acknowledging that Jesus was a Lord and a God. He was personally identifying with Jesus as his Lord and his God. And we'll talk about that in a second. But let's be clear here. In our modern context, we watched WandaVision this last week. If any of you guys have seen that series, one of the phrases that's used multiple times in WandaVision is, this is your truth, right? That's a very common phrase in our world right now is, well, you know, you follow Jesus because that's your truth. I, I, I just try to be a good person because that's my truth. That's not what's going on here. As he responds personally to the truth that Jesus is Savior and Lord and God over all of the universe, He's not just saying, well, this is what I believe, and it's okay for you to believe whatever you believe. Instead, he is acknowledging personally what's true universally. So when we look at this, don't look at this through, through the 21st, or 20, yeah, 21st century lens of the idea that this is you know, him just saying, my truth is that I, I'm seeing Jesus as my Savior, and if you worship Allah, that's okay, or if you just try to be a really good person, or if you worship nature, if you just, that's not what he's saying here. He's taking a personal response to the fact that Jesus is Lord of his life and God of the universe. This is something that's universally applicable, guys. Philippians 2 talks about the fact that there will be a time when every creature in all creation will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, but that doesn't mean that everything's going to be right with God. 
Instead, that will be the time when they see Jesus as he truly is, and they can't help but acknowledge that he's really the Lord of over all creation. So what, what he's doing now, as Thomas responds in belief, belief says, you are my Lord and my God. I recognize that you're Lord and God over everything, but acknowledging right now, you are my Lord and my God. For those of you who have grown up in, in Christian circles, you know, your mom was a Christian, your grandma prayed for you, you've been in church your entire life, this is something incredibly important for you to understand. There must be a time where you accept that yourself. There must be a time where you go from believing because mom believes or dad believes, believing because it's what you were always taught, to the point where you say, I believe that Jesus is my Lord and my God, not just mom's God or dad's God or grandma's God, okay? There has to be a time where you take that personally and appropriate that. That's what belief is. Now, part of that as well is that the personal expression of belief recognizes these two major aspects of, of Jesus' work. Lord and God. Now, Lord is a word we don't use except to swear almost, basically, right? We don't hardly ever use the word Lord anymore other than to say, good Lord, right? The reality is Jesus, when we say is Lord, that's the idea that Jesus is the king, he's the boss, he's in charge over everything, right? So Lord is the acknowledgement of God's control over my life. Uh, John Phillips, a, a Bible commentator, said that in this statement, he first begins by acknowledging that Jesus was Lord over the throne of his heart, okay? That's the idea of me saying, I know that Jesus is my Lord. He's in charge of my life. I'm no longer in charge of my life, my desires, my dreams, my hopes, my aspirations, my, my talents, my treasures, my time. All of that belongs to Jesus because he is my Lord. So I'm putting him in charge of it all. And then he says, not only is he just the, uh, yeah, by the way, with that, that, that kind of counteracts the idea that he's just a good teacher. You know, I was talking with somebody this week who is not a follower of Christ, but he is familiar with the Bible, and he said, you know, I, I really like the ethical framework that the Bible uh, it promotes, and I try to live by the ethics of the Bible. Well, if you try to live by the ethics of the Bible, you have to acknowledge, number one, that you can't because you're not good enough, and that's why you need Jesus because you can't be good enough. And to truly abide by the ethics of the Bible is to put Jesus as your Lord because that's the framework and the foundation of everything that the Bible teaches us about the do's and the don'ts and all that stuff. So as you're looking at belief, it's saying, he is my Lord. I'm putting him in charge of my life. I'm surrendering to him. We sang that earlier. We surrender everything to you. I'm surrendering control. I'm surrendering my future. I'm surrendering my hopes. I'm placing it all in faith on Jesus. But then the flip side is also true. Not only is he my Lord of my heart, Philip says it by saying that, that Thomas says that Jesus is my Lord and my God. He's acknowledging not only is he Lord over my heart, he's also the sovereign God over the universe. He's over the throne of my heart, and he's on the throne of creation. He's on the throne of everything. By acknowledging him as God, we're saying, again, this is not just about my truth. This is not just about what I want to do. This is not just about what I think is best, but he is the God who's over everything in all of creation. He's the one with the power. He's the one with the authority. You can't have just one without the other. 
Belief requires a heart-level acknowledgement of his rule over my heart and over the universe. It's not simply enough to say that he is Lord in the sense that he's the expression of my truth I choose to follow because he's also the sovereign Lord over all creation. But on the other hand, it isn't simply enough to say he's God and recognize his control over the universe without surrendering your own life to his control and following it. See, there were a lot of people back in the founding days of our nation who were deists. They believed that there was a God, but they believed that he didn't have anything to do with what's going on in our world today. It was like a watchmaker who had just wound the watch or wound the clock and let it go and was just standing back watching history unfold. That's not what God is. God is a God who's intimately involved with the creation that he made. He's the one who's intervening. He's the one who's working. He's the one who's present with his people. So belief must be that he is my Lord and he's also my God. That's what it means to believe. So we see Paul express it slightly differently in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. This is what it takes to be a true follower of Christ, not just being born into a Christian home, not growing up in America, not coming to church every Sunday, but to confess like Thomas did, out of a heart that believes in what Jesus has done, he is my Lord, he is my God. So my question, my challenge for you this morning is, have you done that? Have you reached the point where you have actually surrendered and said, God, you're in charge, you are my Lord, you are my God, because that's what it means to believe. Now, with that understanding, I imagine a lot of us in here have made that decision, probably most of us, have genuinely surrendered to Christ. If you haven't today, you, can, you just heard how to do it. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. So expressing to him in prayer, saying, God, I know that you died on the cross for me, you were buried, and you were raised. And so I want to surrender to you and give you control of my life. Now, that's what it takes, recognizing he's my Lord, recognizing he's my God. By the way, uh, I was listening to, or we were talking about country music lyrics uh, this morning. Interesting discussions we have. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if you've ever listened to the country station recently, there's a song in there about, um, what, what's it, is it give them hell till you get to heaven? Is that what it's called? Something like that? Yeah, I don't... It talks about hiding your clear and your beer from the man upstairs. Talking about getting drunk while you're in heaven and partying and just living it up, okay? Uh, first off, nothing about that song is good theology. Let's just go ahead and establish that. But one of the things that they say in there is, I was there the day you said that prayer. So now I know you're in heaven, right? That's not what I'm telling you this morning. I'm not saying that all you got to do is just pray some prayer this morning, you know, go through some words, throw that out, and you're good to go. Get out of hell free card. When Thomas said, my Lord and my God, that wasn't just some tacit acknowledgement. That was him saying, I need you. I'm surrendering to you. And everything about Thomas's life changed from that moment forward. So when I say that you, you talk to God like I'm talking to you, I'm saying that it's that simple. I'm not saying that it's easy. I've used the illustration before. 
uh, deadlifting is a really simple exercise. You bend over, you grab the bar, and you stand back up. That's real simple. But if I told you to deadlift 500 pounds, it's real simple. Just bend over, grab the bar, and stand back up. And it's incredibly difficult, right? There's only probably a handful of people in this room, maybe one that I can think of who could actually do that. Definitely not me, by the way, just in case y'all were wondering. It ain't me. Because it's hard. In the same kind of way, following Jesus is simple. But it is not easy. It requires that commitment to say, I truly believe. Now, what about those of us who have believed? Or if you're here today and you just now placed your trust in Jesus, what about you? What do you do next? The next thing we do after we believe is we go. We go. Jump back up to what he said there to verse 21. Remember, the disciples had already seen Jesus. They were rejoicing because they recognized who he was. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, slow down for a minute and catch that. Do you remember when we looked back at John chapter 15? When we looked at John chapter 15, we said that Jesus said the Father had loved him, and then he had loved us, and then we were supposed to love other people with the same love that he had shown us that was the same love that the Father had showed him. Do you remember that progression? We talked about that back in chapter 15. Here's what he's saying. The Father sent me, Jesus, and now I'm sending you. We are sent into the world just like Jesus was. Now, that's challenging to me because it's very easy for me to go all week long. I mean, you think pastors get chances to share the gospel all the time. The reality is I'm around church people 99% of my life. I talk to church people. I hang out with church people. I meet with church people. I'm at the church office all day. I'm around church people most of the time. Now, maybe not everybody's saved, but everybody at least acts like it for the most part. I have to be intentional about finding times to hang out with people who don't know Jesus. I have to go. I can't just do my normal routine. And all of us, if we're not careful, can fall into that same pattern. All your friends are your friends from your Sunday school class or from the ministry that you're a part of. You go to work, and yeah, you're kind of around some lost people, but man, I just want to get through the day. I'm keeping my head down. I'm staying in my lane. I just want to get home. I just want to go to Walmart and get what I need and go home. I... But the reality is, as the Father sent Jesus into the world, so too he sends us to go. Well, to do what? And that's been a major theme that we've seen throughout the book. John's referred to the Father sending Jesus over 35 times in this book. I think it's 38, not counting this verse. In fact, the Father sending Jesus is so critical that John says in his other writings that this is how God chose to show his love for us. 1 John chapter 4, he says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he lived us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So God the Father sending God the Son to earth to die in our place is absolutely essential for our understanding of God's love. Now, think about that. This is a huge thing that God did in sending Jesus to us. 
And then John, or Jesus in John chapter 17 had said this, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. See, he's sending us to show the love of God just like the Father sent him to do the same. Now, let's take an idea then of a little bit more about what we're to do. You remember when Jesus was with Pilate? There was this exchange in John chapter 18. Pilate said, you're a king then? Pilate asked. You say I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus was sent in the world to testify to the truth. So if that's what Jesus was sent in the world to do, then what are we sent in the world to do? Testify to the truth. Again, I'm going to harp on this one because it drives me crazy. You guys have probably heard at some point somebody attributes this quote to St. Francis. It's guaranteed he didn't say it. I don't know where it actually came from. But somebody has quoted and saying, share the gospel and if necessary, use words. That's just not going to cut it, guys. There are a lot of really nice people out there who don't know Jesus, who don't follow Jesus. So our being sent into the world is going to involve us using our words to be able to tell people about Jesus, to testify to the truth. Now, if our life doesn't back that up, then absolutely there's a disconnect and it's not gonna be effective. If, if you're an absolute jerk and then you start trying to tell people about Jesus, it's gonna make Jesus look bad and I would rather you just not, okay? It's like I've told you, if you're gonna, if you're gonna leave a tract or if you're gonna try to share the gospel with the waiter or waitress and you're a jerk to them and you don't leave a really good tip, really good tip, I would rather you not do it because you're being a poor testimony of who Jesus is. You've been sent into the world, whether that's to the server at Cracker Barrel to the nurse at the doctor's office, to your kid's teacher or soccer coach, to the neighbor that you can't stand? Let's be honest, right? We're to go and to testify about the one who sent us at every opportunity. Now, let's be clear. Jesus' ministry was unique. He taught differently than we do. He did miracles that God doesn't typically enable us to do. However, we should be testifying about the one who sent us at every opportunity we get. Now, I, I want to hit this real quick because it's a, a little bit of a neat geek out moment for me and Craig is the only other person in the room who's going to care about this part. There is this little thing that in the tenses of the Greek that's actually a really interesting little thing when, G when Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, Greek is a lot more specific language than English is. You can get real specific and, and give different nuances that don't carry through in English because it's got different tenses. Like there's multiple different tenses for how you talk about the past tense. It's not just something that happened. There's the, the aorist, which is the it just happened. There's the imperfect, which talks about that what was happening while it was happening. Then there's the perfect and the pluperfect. It gets real confusing. Here's all you need to know about this. When Jesus refers to the Father sending him, it has the idea of an action that was completed in the past, the sending part, but the results of which continue to now. So when Jesus said, the Father has sent me, he was sent, but he's continuing his work. See, when Jesus said this, he's not saying that I'm, I, I did my part of it, I'm done, peace out, y'all have fun. Instead, what he's saying is, 
I'm still in the world. I'm still working. I'm still moving. And now I'm sending you as a part of that. We saw this when we looked at John chapter 16 and we talked about the role of the Holy Spirit and how his role is to testify to the world about Jesus and he does that through his people. So, so when we think about this, this means we're not just going out on our own trying to win the world for Jesus while Jesus sits back and says, huh, wonder how that's gonna work out. No, what we're doing is we're coming alongside the same lives in which Jesus is working through the Holy Spirit behind the scenes in ways that we can't even begin to understand, and he's pulling all of this together and allowing you and me to have the privilege of being a part of intersecting with their lives and helping them come to know who Jesus is. You're not doing this in your own strength. That's why, by the way, as soon as he does this, the next thing he does is breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, most likely, this is not the same thing as what we see in Acts 2. There's a very different phenomenon there. But what we're seeing here is, I don't know if it's, it's he's kind of giving them a, a little taste of what's to come that will cover for the next 50 days until they get to the day of Pentecost. But we don't exactly know what, what's taking place at this point. But what he's doing is, through the Holy Spirit, equipping them to be able to do what he's called them to do. We see that fully happen in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes on the church in power. And now, all of us who live on the other side of Acts 2, from the very moment you said, my Lord and my God, from the moment you placed your saving faith in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, from that moment you became filled with the Spirit of God. He indwells you. And now you have the privilege of being able to do what you do for the glory of God, knowing that he is working in you, working through you, doing what only he can. By the way, guys, this is not something that's only reserved for like some super spiritual class of saints. It's just like me and the deacons are the only people who get to use the spirit. No, that's not how he works. He is in the life of every single believer. And you know what makes that awesome? I told you, I'm around Christians like 99% of the time. You're not. You're at work. You're in the dorm. You're in your apartment. You're at school. You're around people who don't know Jesus that would never talk to me. I'm a preacher. People don't want to talk to preachers. But you're their friend. You're their coworker. You're their next-door neighbor. You've earned the, tr the right to be able to speak in their life in a way that I never will. But what's awesome is the same Holy Spirit who works in me is the same Holy Spirit who worked in Dawn to have her send that text that right when I needed help, she was able to come. It's the same Holy Spirit who works in you to say, oh man, this conversation's turned into spiritual things. I, I, need to, I need to talk to them about Jesus. God has called you to go, to go. We're not doing this on our own power. He's working in and through us. Now, let's talk for a second about the, the kind of confusing verse there in verse 23. There's been a lot in church history that this verse has been taken wrongly. Um, let me read it again. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. There are some traditions that teach that this gives the church the authority to uh, pronounce forgiveness and to withhold forgiveness. That is not what this teaches. You look throughout the clear testimony of Scripture, and that is God's right and God's right alone. Okay, so let's just clearly and unequivocally say God is the one who forgives. God is the only one who can say when forgiveness is withheld for sure, okay? So as we look at this, like I said, 1 John 1, 9 makes it clear that that's God's responsibility and not ours. The best way I've been able to understand what Jesus is teaching us is that as the church faithfully proclaims what the Bible teaches, there will be times where we can affirm that someone has been forgiven 
based off of the testimony that they give, the testimony of their life, and the testimony of God's word. So there are times, I, I hope that you can look at my life and say, Sean is a man who's been forgiven by God because of the, the testimony of what you see in my life. In the same kind of way, I, I hope to be able to look into your lives as God gives me opportunity to come alongside and say, you know what? You give clear testimony of having been forgiven by Christ. The way that you're living your life, you're living to honor him. I can't ever know for sure the state of somebody's heart. You maybe have everybody fooled. But what I see is you seem to be forgiven of your sin. That also comes, by the way, as we as a church seek to extend grace to those who have fallen, those who have really messed up, those who are quite aware of their sin. The reality is we're all sinners, but sometimes we sin in a way that's more public, that has more immediately damaging social consequences. And when the church comes alongside and says, you can be forgiven of this, you can find grace and you truly are forgiven, not some kind of second-class citizen because this was a part of your testimony or your story but you can find grace and be forgiven. Then what we're doing is we're affirming that if we forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven of, okay? And in the same way, we also, this is the privilege that we have that we have to be very cautious about. If I stand up here on a Sunday morning and I sit here and say, well, you know, the Bible says that we're not supposed to do this, but really, that's not that big a deal. Then I am not being faithful to testify to the truth. He says, any that you retain the sins of are retained. In other words, part of my job is to stand up here and tell you that what you're doing is sin. Part of our job as believers is to come alongside each other and even rightly at times in the world to say, this is not right. This is sin. Now, if we do that because we think we're better than everybody else, if we do that because we've got some kind of high pedestal that we think we can look down on everybody because of what we understand about God's word, we are in sin ourselves because of the pride of our own hearts. However, there has to be a time where we say, I love you so much that I will tell you that this is sin. We've done it this morning. Like I said, you may have grown up in a Christian home or going to church your whole life, and so you thought you were right with God. The most loving thing I can tell you is if you've never truly believed in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, my Lord and my God, if you've never done that, then you are lost in your sin. Your sin is still retained, and you are not forgiven. Not because of my authority, but because the authority of God's word and what God said. You see that? So I I don't have the ability to say I absolve you of your sin. That's not a role that God's given to me or to any other man or woman for that matter. No pastor, no priest has that power. And those who do, I'd love to have a long conversation about it. Those who think they do, let's say that. I can say, though, that based off the authority of God's word, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the sins that are the hot-button issues of today, uh, abortion, homosexuality, all of these sins that we talk about, every single one of those things is sin but can be forgiven. You understand that? We're really good sometimes at being able to say, this is wrong, and it is, and we have a role to do that. That's part of what we're called to go and to do. But with that is the hope of the gospel that has to say, but God loves you so much, he would leave heaven and come and die in your place so that you could be forgiven of that and every other sin, like lying or being lazy or being proud or not praying like you ought or not reading your Bible as you ought, not being as generous as you ought. All of these things are sin. 
And all of them can be forgiven by the grace of God. How? By believing. By saying, you are my Lord, my God. So today, as we talk about building off last week, seeking the risen Savior, you're going to seek the risen Savior by believing and by going. Bow your head with me. Close your eyes. Let's take just a second and and respond to what God's saying. So here's the the question. First off, have you ever believed truly? Are you sure? Are you certain that there has been that time in your life where I have said, you are my Lord, you are my God. Forsaking everything else, I am following you and I'm trusting you. Have you believed? If not, Believe right now. Place your trust in him. You've heard my testimony and the testimony of others. You've heard what God said in his word. Stop fighting and simply surrender and say, God, you are my God. You are my Lord. And I want to follow you from this day forward. If you're here, though, first off, the question, I got to wonder, too, if you've made that decision, are you still... Are you still acting like those things are true? He really is your Lord, or are you still trying to take control over your own life again? Are you still acting like he is the God of the universe, or do you feel like he's maybe falling asleep at the wheel because if you knew what was going on, there's no way he'd let this happen? Surrender. Believe. And then for those of us who have believed, the next question is, where do I need to go today? Where do I need to go this week? Mom and dad, going may be to your kids this week. Not only modeling for them what a a godly man or a godly woman looks like, but actually teaching them how to follow Jesus with your words as well. Maybe it's your coworker. They're going to come to you this week and say, I have had an absolutely terrible week. My uncle passed away suddenly, and I just don't even know what to do. Maybe that's the opportunity for you to be able to speak to them about Jesus in a loving and a kind and a gracious way. Maybe God's calling you to go to a neighbor or a family member. Maybe you sense in some way God's calling you to go around the world. There are still literally billions of people who don't know who Jesus is. As the world's opening back up after the pandemic, maybe your prayer request today needs to be, God, if you want me to go to the ends of the earth, I'll go. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes. But here's the challenge with that. Don't think you can go there and do what you're not doing here. So where does God want you to go here, today, this week? Take just a moment with your head bowed and your eyes closed and do business with God. If you need to talk with me, I'll be down front. Uh, By the way, I know we have a number of folks from our Discover class who are uh, ready to join. We'll hold off on that until next week. Um, But if you need to talk with me or, or pray, just take a minute and do that. And then I'll close this with prayer in just a minute.
Father, the words of that song that Daniel's playing right now is, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. So, Father, that's our prayer today. We wish that we could see you in person. And we look forward to that day. We thank you that Lonnie Hogg and Virgie Stone and so many others are there in your presence right now. And for them, faith has become sight. But for us today, we confess again, we as a church and as individuals believe that you are our God. You're the God over all of creation. You are also our Lord. You're our leader. You're our boss. So, Father, we surrender again today to you. As you sent the disciples out, as you send us out, we want to go and testify to the truth. Help us to live lives that give clear testimony to you through our actions. But then, Father, beyond that, give us the strength to say that we are followers of Christ. Give us the wisdom to engage those around us who don't know you. Give us the tenderness and the compassion coupled with the strength and the fortitude that it takes to be able to point people to Christ. It's not so that our church would get better. It's not so that we would get notches in our belt of all the people we've shared the gospel with. It's so that more people would come to know the incredible God you are. And that as they do, they would give you the glory and the honor that they, that they should, that you so rightly deserve now so that they won't be forced to in that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Help us to go out this week as your people who are testifying about you. Give us wisdom as a church about what we need to be doing together corporately about engaging the world out around us with the gospel, whether that's in our individual homes and our families, whether that's us as a church adopting a neighborhood or a school or getting involved with the community in some way, we want to go because you're worth it. If there's somebody in here who you're working on their heart and you want them to serve you overseas, God, would you make that clear to them what those steps would look like? We'll give you all the praise and all the glory for what you do as we get to see you more as we go. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.